0: Well, the Lord's presence is here. Amen? Yep. Um, if we could have the young people go off to Children's Church, Miss Kiki has an awesome, awesome time with you guys. bow your heads with me for a moment. We just want to thank the Lord for His presence here. Lord, we understand that it is You, Emmanuel, as God with us. And You're here among us, Lord. And not just in a general doctrinal understanding that God is here, Lord, You are an ever-present help in time of trouble. And Lord, I pray that we would sense and have a confidence about ourselves today that, God, if You are for us, who can be against us? And today, no matter what we face, and no matter what the problem is in front of us, Lord, I thank You that You see beyond that. And I thank You today, God, that we can go beyond the veil, and we can enter into the Holy of Holies. That we don't have to wait for a proper moment, or a cue, or someone to tell us. But Lord, the invite is there. And Lord, we enter in today, and we don't wait, and we don't slack back, but we enter the throne room of grace today with a holy boldness. And Lord, as we sang these simple carol songs, that are so timeless and they're almost too commonplace sometimes for us, I pray that You would reawaken that love and that stirring and that understanding of the purpose that You came here and that You are the Savior of the world and that You forgive our sins and that You throw them as far as the west is from the east, that You forget them and that You give us new life and a hope God, fill us with a love that we can't generate ourselves. Fill us with a love today for the people that we could never love on ourselves in our own strength. Fill us with a love today for the future that you have for us. Fill us up for a love today and a passion to love you, God, with our, all our heart, soul, and strength. And that we would love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Lord, we thank you for lighting those candles today. Stephen, Margaret, if you guys don't mind coming up here, I want to pray over you guys. It's ever since you guys decided to light that second candle. I want to just pray over you guys real quick a blessing. You thought your time was done. If you don't mind just extending your hand towards them, I believe God's got something special for Stephen, Margaret, today. Lord we thank you for your plans and your callings and the giftings and callings that you have for Stephen Margaret Dalton. Lord Jesus the God how you are there and Lord you are pouring out a blessing in them even now. And Lord as they lit that candle today I couldn't help but think and imagine what on earth You are doing in them and through them. And Lord, I thank You for the surprises that You have for them and the victories that You have for them. And Lord, the things that You are going to announce to them in the not-too-distant future. And Lord, I pray that You cover them. And thank You, God, for the anointing and for the leadership and for their voices. And God, I just thank You for that, that You're going to break through and do a mighty, mighty thing in their life. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Love you guys. Where'd the Kleenex go? Oh, there's two boxes there. Thank you. Okay, on to the water sponsor. Well, we got Carlsbad Alkaline Water. Yes. From a California historic site. All right, Jim and Donna Maria, thank you for this. This is great. This came straight from California. So it's uh here's it. This was discovered in 1882, one block from the Pacific Ocean. This 9,500 year old, aged, pure, living water comes from a 1,700 foot deep aquifer that originates 60 miles east of the mountains of Cleveland National Forest. Everyone say wow. So here's the thing. It enhances uh, water with a unique combination of minerals that make it pure, naturally high alkaline. Are alkaline and electrolytes, and it's most full, nothing added. It's beautiful. They actually call this living water. So we're going to pray a blessing over another our next young person. Where's Paige at? Is Paige here? Paige, come on up here. Give it up for Paige. So Paige, again, you have to drink some of this living water during service, and we're going to make sure that you're still alive here during the middle of service, okay? So we're going to pray a blessing over Miss Page today, okay? Lord, I just thank you for this wonderful page, this young lady who is growing up in you. And Lord, I pray that she would draw deep from the wells of salvation. And Lord, she would get ministered to by the living water. Lord, I thank you that like as the woman at the well was wondering where you get from this and where do you draw from? Lord, I thank you that as Page grows in her strength, from strength to strength and from glory to glory, she will always know the well that she can go to to draw strength and encouragement and know that, God, You are there. And, God, she will never thirst again for anything else because she thirsts for You, the living water. As the deer pants for the water brook, oh, my soul longs for You. And I pray that promise over her today that, oh, my soul thirsts for You, she will declare. In Jesus' name, Amen. Really neat. Alright, should we start this thing? Alright, I'm going to quiz you halfway through, Page John 3.16. This is the verse you see at all your sporting events. Maybe not anymore. Maybe they don't allow them there anymore. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was a good joke. See. The PC police, no. For God so loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. What an amazing verse. I think about today, we're talking about the candle of Advent. Love. Love. Really simple, but how many of you have many times have to raise your hand and have lacked love in your life? And you think about those moments where It was the most beautiful thing that you came to Christ because He first loved you and me. You know, we didn't choose Christ. Christ chose us. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We think we picked God out and we're, we got it figured out. No, God figured out for us and He became our Savior and it was a wonderful thing. I want us to understand this and it's a really simple understanding about God's plan for man. I was reading a a section there Billy Graham was talking about. In fact, uh, it's in the bulletin, that quote, I love that beautiful quote, it said, uh, it's been said that there was, uh, there, was cro- there was a cross in the heart of God long before the cross was erected at Calvary. And I think that's something very, very special to us. Revelation thirteen eight, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. In other words, before the world began, it was already part of God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross. Isn't that just unbelievable? Do you know with Christ, the cross was not plan B? Turn to someone and say, there is no plan B's with God. So here's the crazy thing. God creates Adam and Eve. They're in the garden, a perfect state of happiness and joy, perfection. And isn't it just the human condition where God gave mankind choice? Boy, wouldn't life be so simple if we didn't have to choose all the time? Now, how many made a wrong choice before in your life? <laughs> so we make these bad choices and bad decisions, and Adam made this bad decision to follow through in this and take from the fruit of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil. And now we see God walking through the garden asking the very simple question, Adam, where are you? The Lamb of God who was slain from the creation of the world, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit didn't go... Oh man, Adam and Eve fell. Now what are we going to do? No, they knew exactly what to do. In fact, once they fell and they made that horrible decision to find their own way and their own example in life, God Himself went through there and killed and made a sacrifice and covered them up and covered their nakedness up in that moment. From that point on, prophetically, it was steering towards the moment we would see Jesus in the manger. He said, what does this have to do with Christmas? The manger has everything to do with the cross. If you have a born baby Jesus and no cross, you have no Christmas. Today, know this, God has never once turned His love off towards us or stopped pursuing connection with us. Think about that for a moment. God has never stopped loving you and me. You might have had people fail you and stop loving you. You might have had people in your life, maybe your mom or dad, and everything in your life was performance-driven. But with God, He loves you and He accepts you and He always wants to connect with you. The three questions we're going to dive in today are this, is what does this kind of love look like? And why does He love everyone this way? And will everyone receive this kind of love? What does this kind of love look like? Why does He love everyone this way? And will everyone receive this kind of love? Turn real quick to Isaiah chapter 53 and you're going to find the picture of love and it's not going to be a pretty one. Isaiah 53. We see a prophetic message here. The prophet lays out the actual Picture of the cross. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root and dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about His appearance. Nothing to attract us to Him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion and he was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, He did not open His mouth. Unjustly condemned, He was led away. No one cared that He died without descendants, that His life was cut short in midstream. When he was struck down for the rebellion of my people, he had done no wrong and never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But, everyone say but. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hand. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible. For many will be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honor of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. What an amazing story. This is the picture of love. This is a picture of Christ. This is, this prophet is writing down, writing down a vision that God had given to him and penning in the pages the very moment of Calvary and from starting from the moment this tender shoot that he was not attractive, we despised him. There was nothing about him that attracted us to him. Jesus was a normal man. Jesus did not walk with a glowing halo around his head. Mary didn't walk around with a glowing halo around her head. And so when he came to a world that it did not accept him, there wasn't a king's coronation. In fact, after he was born, I was thinking during worship, I'm like, just moments, stay after he was born, however that timing happened, now they're fleeing to Egypt, fleeing for their lives, and God says stay there until the king dies because his life is going to be taken. What does that love look like to you? And what does love look like in your life? You know, when I was going through counseling classes and working with people and you know, understanding this performance-driven society that we live in, it is really hard to kind of be accepted, isn't it? People don't accept you for who you are. The world doesn't. You have to set yourself up in things and people and you have to make the great and do this. All of it is set up as a performance thing. If you do this, these things will happen for your life. And we have correlated with God this kind of punishment thing, this kind of understanding that God, if I am just good enough, you'll somehow love me more. God loves you. If you didn't do another good thing this week or this year in your lifetime, God would never love you any less. Christ came to make you free, by the way. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. You don't have to turn there, but maybe write it down. The Bible says this about you and I. And this is why we need depravity in our Gospel. You say, well, what's depravity for you and me? You and me were not born good people. That's the most important thing. You and I aren't half good people that need to be kind of trained a little bit better how to hold our fork better at the table. No, the Bible says that we were enemies with God. And so this love comes to enemy." You know, it's one thing for you and I to do a favor for someone who loves us back? But loving someone who doesn't love us back? Now that's crazy. You know, we were in the jail and we would talk to these guys and we're like, you know, we're in a small locked up room with them and we're like, hey fellas, how many of you right now in this place would take a bullet for your friends? And they're like, heck yeah, man, I'd take a bullet for my friend. And then we asked them a really deep question. We said, how many of you would take a bullet right now for your enemy?" nobody stepped forward. And that's what Christ did. He took a bullet for you and I. He took a beating. He took the shame. He took the embarrassment. And that's what this love looks like. You say, well, what's love going to look like for me? Is it going to be pretty? No, it's not. It's going to be really ugly. You might have to go through some pretty hard places. You might have to be ground down. You know, we did these live minds. We went down to Southern Illinois University in high school, and we wanted to minister on the campus. Southern Illinois University is known as the party capital of the United States. Like, if you go to SIU, there's, a, there's as many bars as there are Starbucks in New York. It's just, that's all they do there. We go into these bars and these places. We went on this college campus and we did this old Carmen song, This Blood's for You. And we, we tried to demonstrate as best as possible to get physical about the death of Christ and I remember one time, you know, our youth pastor uh pastor Mike was like, Guys, you can't fake it, you really gotta into it. So me and my friend Jason Hale were like, Chris Graham's this is his name, he was playing Jesus and so me and Jason were like, He's getting it bad. Because we knew we could get it, free punches on him and he wouldn't even do it. So we're, we're punching him. We're like kicking him. And we're slamming him on the ground. And he comes up. He's got blood on his nose. He slammed his a little too hard in that moment. But all joking aside, here we're acting. And Chris is like, guys, when you guys play Jesus, you're getting it. <laughs> but Jesus really did it. Jesus did it. And even the movie The Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson produced and developed, one of the most successful movies of all time, was probably the most accurate picture of it. I, I never want to see the movie again. You know, you can watch The Ten Commandments every Easter. That's a great movie to watch. I love watching it as we're getting ready for the Easter celebration. I just love it. I love it. It's just that classic thing. I can't watch The Passion of the Christ. I don't want to see that. You don't drink pop and eat popcorn watching this. What does this love look like for you and me? It's violent. It's hard. It's not easy. It it is going the extra mile. You say, man, how long do I have to love like this the rest of your life? And as we follow Christ, Christ came to do this. He came to make us free. Why do you love like this? Because the hope is that the people around you will know freedom like you know freedom. See, there are people around you right now that are bound in some junk. And as opposed to us condemning them for the junk that they find themselves in, I dare say you join in them in their junk and get down in it, one hand in the gutter and one hand in the glory, and you bring the stuff together and you might smell like the gutter a little bit. I'll never forget, we clean gutters, you know, and i went to this one house and me and the guy were cleaning. I was down by the downspout pulling it out. It was coming underneath there. And I pulled my hand through it, and I'm like, this really stinks. This is a bad stinking gutter here. And life sometimes stinks. Turn to somewhere quick and say, life stinks sometimes. See, us Christians have this religiosity that life was supposed to be pretty, don't we? And when life's not pretty, we don't like it. But God's plan for man is that He came to a sin-sick world. He didn't come for the well, but He came for the sick. And we take that verse, and us religious folks, I was actually thinking about that today getting ready about Jesus coming. He said, I came for the well, not the sick. And some people go, well, I'm not the, the sick person. I'm the well person. When He was saying that, He was implying that He came to, for us all. He wasn't just coming to a group of people. He was coming to mankind. He was coming to all of us. Dead in trespasses and sins, and we forget in our Christian faith and our dialogue and all of our church services that we still need the savior in our life. That I am still sick in areas of my life. Me and Nate share stories about how we're on different kinds of antibiotics. We're okay by the way. So you can be by us. We're good. Round two and round three, we're still sick. We're still dealing with stuff. How many of you are you still dealing with stuff in your life right now? You're still dealing with stuff. You say, well, that's not my stuff. That's their stuff. No, it becomes your stuff. See, when you have family and things in your life, that's, you can't compartmentalize and say, well, that's their problem. No, no, this is our problems. Your problems... Now are my problems and that's why God gives us burdens. And I hate to say it like that because God says my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But God gives each of us burdens for people. How many have had a burden for someone to pray for them and you loved them and you said, I need to pray for that person because maybe God inspired you to get involved in their lives. God gave you a burden for that person. That's the Spirit of Christ coming in and you taking on that Spirit and saying, you know what God? You've commanded me to love. Love's not pretty. Turn to someone and say, love is not pretty. See, we want the romantic style of love. And although the passion of Christ was very passionate, it was very ugly. We go way back to the Garden of Eden and God pursuing and asking where we are. And we say, well, where is God now with all the problems we have in the world? He is pursuing the people. He is pursuing people. That's what he's doing. You know, Reinhard Bonnke, one of my favorite evangelists, we just found out, my wife texted me, he was an evangelist to Africa. God gave him a vision and he saw the whole continent of Africa covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And his vision and his call was to see every African person come to Jesus Christ. Some of the greatest revivals right now are having in Africa. And you know how many people came to Christ through that one man? 77 million people. People gave their life to Christ. In His last crusade, 1.5 million people heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ. God is pursuing people. God is loving people. If you are talking to a friend who doesn't know anything about the Savior, if you can tell him one thing about God, Don't get confused about anything else. Don't get into arguments about this and why this is happening. Why are there starving people in China? Say, God is love. You will always have human condition. And you will always have people make stupid decisions. You will always have people make wrong choices like Adam and Eve did. But you will always have a loving God who loves us in spite of the choices we make and will turn what was a stumbling block and a mess in our adventure and He will make it good. And that's what I love about God. God is love. Know this today. God is with you. John 1.14, we get the word Emmanuel. He said, what is Emmanuel? Emmanuel means God with us. John 1.14 declares this. Numbers 14.9, Joshua and Caleb talking to the people of Israel and they saw that the Promised Land was good, and he said, guys, those giants have it coming to them. Don't worry about those people. Know that God is with us. If you can be in confidence today, know this, that God showers you with His love and that is all you need to get through your day. And I, I hate to say it even like get through your day because I don't want you just to just get through your day. You, you are an overcomer here today. You and I are overcomers. We're not just getting, trudging through. We're victorious through Jesus Christ. Where does, why does He love everyone this way? How many of you would love to see, you don't have to raise your hand, but we don't mind it when we see the bad guy get caught, right? That person got what was coming to them. See, with that kind of Gospel that doesn't work in this place. It doesn't work in the Bible. That's not the gospel that Jesus gave. Because if that was the case, then every one of us would get what was coming to us. David prayed a prayer like this and he said, God, you didn't discipline me how I deserved. You ever remember those times growing up maybe when your mom or dad could have disciplined you worse and grounded you for eight years and they only grounded you for six months? Whatever. It could have been worse. It could have been worse. See, here's what God does. You read in Isaiah 53 and all the punishment that you and I deserved was laid upon God. So when you come to Christ, you are not under judgment any longer. Do you know what you're under? You're under the covering of grace. Isn't that a great place to be? We were created, and why does He love everyone this way? See, God reigns on the just and unjust. So we say, man, why did that guy get blessed? Because God loves him. Well, why why did this happen to this person? We always have these little things we work out, the yin and yang of things. We mix our little Eastern religion ideas of like, again, the four good things and God will bless me once. But see, God blesses everyone. And you know why He blesses everyone? Because everyone was created in the image of God. God had a purpose for everyone. We were created with a spirit and a soul and a body. So everybody born on planet earth has a purpose and has a plan and was born with the image of God. They were God image bearers. Now the problem is they needed Jesus in their life. And they were blinded in sin and sickness Mark Sayers right. the term, the image of God, was an incredibly radical way of describing humanity. Israel spent much of his early history living on the edges of more powerful cultures such as the Sumerians and the Babylonians. These cultures saw humans as slaves whose only role was to ensure that the gods' needs were met. They saw the universe as a kind of concentration camp in which humans worked to satisfy the needs and the desires of the capricious gods. The Israelites, in contrast, dared to believe that God created humans to partner with Him and cultivating and blessing creation. Holiness was not mindless devotion through repetitive rituals designed to placate angry gods. Rather, it was cooperating with God in the endeavor of improving creation. And so we begin to detect part of our original identity. See, many cultures go through and many religions go through the idea and their identity is they're trying to placate to the gods and do things to appease the gods. And they go through rituals and uh, all sorts of prayers and they pray like the heathens. And what do the heathens do? Jesus said, don't pray like the heathens. The heathens try to somehow wake the gods up. Remember when they were trying to appease the Baal gods and Elijah was saying, hey, maybe your God's sleeping, and so they would do things and dances. Folks, that's what's been going on for a long, long time, and people still think that God is this way. Israel had a different impression. They had an understanding that God, they needed to cooperate with God and walk alongside of Him. Do you remember God speaking with Abraham saying, Abraham, I'm going to tell you what I'm getting ready to do. I want to talk to someone. He created us for intimacy. He created us for friendship. Many of us today don't understand, but God has given you a beautiful identity. Turn to someone and say, i got a great identity. You know, you've got identity theft going on. Maybe you are in this place and you had your identity stolen or whatever. And it's a hard thing for that electronic thing to happen in your life. You know, my daughter Ashley, she gave me something, I think it was for my birthday. She gave me a DNA test. It was a very powerful moment for me. So the joke at my house was I've always had a dream of being Irish. It's just my heart. I I think I wanted to start becoming Irish. Anne came down and visited me at Bible school when we were dating, and we saw Braveheart. Now, the funny thing with Braveheart was this it was 1996. And we're wanting to go see a movie together on a nice date night. And there's a picture of this beautiful lady and this handsome, dapper warrior and they're just embracing, like, you know. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be like a romantic film. This is going to be wonderful. We have a romance together. And right out of the gate, man, it is like, after the first ten minutes, it is like, I'm sitting there and Ann's like... (laughs) And I'm like... Did you see that sword? That's the best movie ever. So I think from that time, I always had a dream of being William Wallace, okay? And I thought maybe, maybe somewhere downstream, I'm Irish or Scottish or something because I love St. Patrick. He was an awesome man. You read the history of St. Patrick, that guy was amazing. I said, these guys are fantastic. And so Ashley says, here's to you being Irish dad. And she was actually expecting a possibly like a big goose egg of nothingness. Well, are you, can I have some drum roll in this place, please? 17% Irish Scottish. Yeah, thanks. Just want to say thanks to William Wallace, my great, 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 great grandfather. No, I'm just kidding. He—he's not. We might be related somehow, but I have seven. I have no idea where that Irish got in me, but it's there. And uh, so I knew it that the Lord was really working in my heart. Just, yeah. So we understand identity is so important. You know, it's neat those stories people finding family members and brothers and sisters that they reconnect with. But you know what's really powerful and beautiful as a believer in Jesus Christ when you understand that you are created as a new creature in Christ Jesus? Oh, it's way better than being 17% Irish. Trust me. It's way better than whatever you thought you had and whatever heritage and whatever king you might be related to. You are related to King Jesus. It is so wonderful. Turn real quick to 2 Samuel 9, verses 1-13. through I'm going to tell you a powerful story of identity and what this love does for you and for me. See, I think we have an identity crisis. And once you find out who you are in Christ, no one can tell you otherwise. You know, one thing Jesus never apologized for is His relationship with His Father. You don't have to apologize for the relationship you have with Christ. Jesus always said, me and the Father are one. And just as me and the Father have love and we have unity, I want to have bestow that same unity upon you believers now. I want to pour this. He understood His place in God. And if I could somehow burn brand on everyone in here that's a believer today, and you're struggling with your identity in Christ, and you don't know where you place I don't care where you have sinned or where you have fallen or what you are struggling with. You are a son and daughter of the Most High. Mephibosheth! I know that's funny, Matthew. That is a funny name. Don't name your kids this, okay, people? I know we're all into this naming your kids Bible names and stuff, but don't do Mephibosheth. Sorry, Mephibosheth. We'll talk about it later. One day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba who had been... Go ahead, Matthew, you can laugh. No, I'm just kidding. ...been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked, Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. And the king then asked him, Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, Yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodibar, Ziba told him, at the home of uh, Mechur's son of uh, Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makur's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? The king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, Yes, Lord, my king, I am your servant. I will do all that you've commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah and from that time on all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants and Mephibosheth who was crippled in both feet lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. See, Mephibosheth didn't know it. He didn't know about the promise that King David made to his best friend, Jonathan, and the covenant that they made together that they would take care of their family if one of them were to die. And here Mephibosheth comes in thinking that David, on behalf of Saul and all the wars and battles, was just going to take Mephibosheth out. And here God is establishing for you and I today the understanding that we sit at the king's table. If you can understand that today with all of your failures and with all of your humanity and with all your mistakes. Isn't it interesting? He's like, yeah, is there anyone left? And the guy emphasizes, yeah, this guy named Mephibosheth, he lives in Lodibar. Oh, by the way, he's got two crippled legs. Like, what did that have to do with anything? What it matter if he had a broken toe, a speech impediment? It doesn't matter. I'm asking who this is. And isn't it funny how the first thing that happens when God chooses to sit us at the table, a little we in fear feel bad because we're crippled in the area of our life and say, am I even allowed to sit at the king's table because of these handicaps going on in my life spiritually? You can. And I hope you are. God never intended for you and I to eat bologna sandwiches spiritually. And you can sit back in life and you can go go through whatever you've got, peanut butter and jelly, and say, God doesn't love me and nobody loves me. Or you can sit at the table like Mephibosheth as he draws you in and eat regularly at the table. Come and eat and drink and dine with Him. You've been given a God-given identity. You say, man, how much does God love me? I love in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, he says, my people are being destroyed Because they do not know Me. Do you know why believers get destroyed? Because they really don't know God. They don't have the confidence in the the God that they serve. They, They don't know God they don't know his capabilities and they haven't heard the stories. God instructed the children of Israel, write these things around, put them around your neck, remind your children of the miracles that I've done before in the past. And you know what builds us up when we're going through rough times in our life and we say, man, nothing's shaking right now here. Be reminded of what happened to your brothers and sisters before in the past. When you think revival isn't coming to Rockford, say, God, if you brought revival to Africa, bring Rockford to the revival. By golly, God, if you're bringing miracles and signs and wonders in this area, why can't we have it? You're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. We need to wake up to the love of God and understand that God loves us. He loves you, He loves me. The example of the prodigal son should set us up in place. The son's a far way off, and we see the father running to him, not him running to the father. He was in shame broken down, saying I'm just going to be a servant in God's house like many of us pray to God. I'll just be a servant for God. I'll just... And God is saying, I don't call you slaves anymore. I call you sons and daughters. He doesn't address you and me like servants. He addresses you and me like friends. The religious person prefers to be called a servant because what happens is once we get out of the slave mentality into friendship, then there's intimacy, and we actually have to talk about some things other than the weather in life. The prodigal son's father sees him down the road, and he runs to him, and he says, "My son, who was once dead, is now alive. Sorry, Dad. I forgive me, horrible person. Sorry for taking advantage of all of you. I just ruined it all. Shut up. Here is a ring." Here's a robe. Here's your sandals back. Oh, by the way, the greatest feast that we've been saving for some special moment, you know, it's kind of like that fine wine you have on the counter that you don't know when you're going to open that bottle up, but if it's going to be for a good moment, well, now is the time. Currently, someone are and say, now is the time. The prodigal's father doesn't even address to his son. He doesn't treat him like a dog and tell him about all the bad things he did and grind it in make sure that he remembers the smells. Romans 2.28 says, You are not a true druid just because, or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No." A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. So it doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter who you were born of, your descendants. We can't blame our parents anymore for our problems. Turn us someone and say, don't blame your mom for your problems anymore. Can't blame mom no more. Can't blame your grandma. Can't blame uncle. Can't blame your brother. You can't blame any of these folks no more before God not about what didn't go right or what went wrong. No, your heritage now is I am going to get my heart right before God. That is a true Jew. That is a believer in Jesus Christ. By the way, let me tell you this today. You say, when am I made right? Isn't it important to get things made right? You were made right with God the moment He made His residence within your heart. You were made right with God in that moment. Now are we maturing and growing? Absolutely. But you became in right standing with God and you came out from under the punishment of the sin into the grace and covenant of God in relationship because now you are identified not by the sin in the past, but you are identified with Christ. The problem is we are trying to marry the past with our future. And God wants nothing to do with your past. And He wants everything to do with your future. Identity is so important in the love of God because you can't get love from someone if you're not willing to receive it. You know, it's kind of like giving a present to someone. You know, you kind of get in a wrestling match. Here, I want you to have that. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Take the dumb gift and receive it with joy. When my children will open their gifts up, they're not going to be like, Dad, Mom, we don't deserve these gifts. Please receive them back to us. Because we are not worthy of these gifts. We'd be like, what? <laughs> Open the gifts. We did these and give these gifts. God gives gifts to men. And you know what's beautiful with the gifts? And here's how sloppy grace is God gives gifts to men and he never takes them back. You remember the verse that says God's giftings and callings are without repentance? So even you can take advantage of God's gifts. You can use God's gift for your own good and your own glory. And that's what I believe a lot of people in Hollywood and the music industry do and and say God gives them a beautiful voice or ability to act and talents and then they go use it for themselves. God isn't going to come through and swoop and say, nope, I'm taking that voice out of your lungs now. So important for us to understand this love of God is so unreserved. See, we don't know this in our culture. We don't know this in our families. We don't know what love is. I, you know, The Bible says, how many of you parents, you fathers who are wicked, and that's how we compare to God. I'm wicked to compare to God's love. How I father is nothing compared to what God does for me. I can only love incompletely. I fail. I have to ask forgiveness. I have to learn. I have to grow. He said, how many of you fathers who are wicked know how to give gifts? How much more do you know how that I give gifts and bless people and love them? Oh, we need to re-encounter with that kind of love, don't we? You were made right with God the moment you asked Christ into your heart. 1 Peter 2.9 I don't have you turning to all these verses, but maybe turn here. This is a beautiful one. Maybe write it down. 1 Peter 2 9. You are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And if you're living any other way than understanding that you're a chosen son and daughter, then you're losing out on the opportunity to stand upright with confidence with the glory of God that you don't have to live under shame anymore. You say, even with my sin, yeah, the Bible says that we're going to sin. The Bible says when you sin, there's an allowance. It doesn't mean we take advantage of it. But God says when you do sin, get up, ask for repentance, move and ask for forgiveness, and turn around and go after God again. Don't forget, by the way, though, this love is a perfecting love. Turn real quick to Hebrews chapter 12 and let's see what God does. You know, because the Bible also says this, and this is where we go, uh-oh, he's going somewhere now. Turn to and say, uh-oh. God says He disciplines those whom He loves. So if you're receiving some discipline right now, and discipline, by the way, is part and parcel with disciple, so if God's working things out in your life right now, it's not because God hates you or that God has given up on you. It's actually because God is invested in you and wants to see you mature and He wants to see you grow. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are such surrounded by such a uh, huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, discarding the shame. Now he is sitting in the place of honor besides God's throne. Think of all the hostility endured for sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives into your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He says, my children... Or my child, don't make light the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one of us he accepts as his children. I think it's important for us to understand this idea of Christ disciplining us as believers. I love a quote by Dwight D. Eisenhower. I just heard, I've never read this before. He said, you don't lead by hitting people over the head. That's assault, not leadership. And I love that quote because it's an example of who Christ is and that He loves us and He's long-suffering and He's merciful. Many of us in our Christian faith have got this idea that every time we stumble and fall, God has got that ruler and He's just whacking everyone with a ruler, a cosmic ruler, just wham, wham. And we live under this fear that, oh no, is God going to get me today? And God is a friend that sticks closer than their brother. That's the best way to describe Him. He's our Father, but He does discipline us And He might move us through times where we have a wilderness and to encounter Him in a deeper place. There might be times where we think we screwed up or maybe we even think God screwed up and we're all alone. And let me tell you something, it's in those places where we feel all alone and where we feel like life has just moved on without us, that's where Christ enters in. He is not a cosmic rule beating everyone up God. And that is not even the description in the Old Testament. You don't have a different God in the Old Testament than you do in the New Testament. Through His every action, through His love and commitment and care, we learn that He doesn't discipline you and me as much as we deserve. God's discipline shows you and I the way of salvation growing in Him, seeking His ways, and learning His thoughts. A marriage covenant relationship you see, our union with Christ is best described as a marriage. And a beautiful picture of God's love is to the unfaithful people and the children of, of, of Israel in Hosea, where He drew them out into the wilderness. And he, he had told Hosea to go marry this prostitute and actually buy her and bring her back and to separate her from it. And this was a type of Christ with the church that has been unfaithful. And God says, I'm going to draw her into the wilderness, and I'm going to restore to her, and I'm going to give her my unfailing love. That's the picture of Christ. And many of us would prefer the God of tips and points. And you'll never get tips and points at this church. We see a God say this in Hosea, I want you to know Me more than I want burnt offerings. See, many of us would rather go through the schedule of events. I tithe, I go to church, I sang a song, Now God Bless My Home. See, he says, I would rather have you get to know me than all of your burnt offerings. Brings us to the last question. Will all receive this kind of love? Because, see, it's a choice, isn't it? You can choose to love God or not love him. You can choose to obey or not obey. It's not based on some kind of DNA thing for you. It's like, well, I'm Italian, so I'm this way. I'm Irish 17%, so I'm... You can't do that with God. So not all are going to receive God's love. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce described a busload of people from hell who come to the outskirts of heaven. There they argued to leave behind the sins they have trapped them in hell, but they refused Hell begins with a grumbling mode, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. And then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just to grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell, and each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. Danny Silk commentated on that thought. He said, the people in hell are miserable, but Lewis shows us why. We see raging like unchecked flames their pride, their paranoia, their self-pity, their certainty that everything else is wrong, that everyone else is an idiot. All their humanity is gone, and thus so was their sanity. They are utterly finally locked in prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone else but themselves. Hell is that at large. That is why it's travesty to picture God casting people into a pit who are crying, I'm sorry, let me out. The people on the bus to hell in Lewis's parable would rather have their freedom as they define it than salvation. Their delusion is that if they glorified God, They would somehow lose power and freedom. But in a supreme tragic irony, their choice has ruined their own potential for greatness. Hell is, as Lewis says, the greatest monument to human freedom. As Romans 1.24 says, God gave them up to their desires. All God does in the end with people is give them what they want most, including freedom from Himself. What could be more fair than that? I want us to expound on this thought with C.S. Lewis. It says there are only two kinds of people. Those who say thy will be done to God are those to whom God in the end will say thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. I want us to end with this. Romans chapter 1. Let's turn that real quick. And Sandra, if you want to come up here and start playing. Paige, how is that water, by the way? Good. I want us to think about the plight of mankind. In verse 23, it says. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served things God created instead of the Creator Himself. See a lot of that earth worship going on now, don't we? Who is worthy of eternal praise? Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against their natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that they should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, and hate, And Envy and murder and quarreling and deception and malicious behavior and gossip. They are backstabbers and haters of God. Insolent and proud and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises, are heartless, and they have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too let me make this really clear. All of those sins in that book, I think every one of us has fallen, at least one of them. Can I get a hearty Amen there? If you've ever gossiped in this place, if you've ever lied in this place, if you've ever done a shameful act, if you've ever engaged any kind of alternative lifestyle, all of it, it's covered under this. And God gives you and me grace. And you can argue today And you can say, well, why would God send anyone to hell? God does not send anyone to hell. It is by your choice and it is by my choice. In fact, 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, that the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. Do you want to know why Christ hasn't returned yet, which he's returning soon? You know why He hasn't returned yet? Because He is waiting for at least one more person to come to the Kingdom of God. Amen. He wills that none should perish. Don't turn here, but Romans 2.4 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, intolerant, and, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? And can't you see that His kindness is intended... To turn you from your sin. Can't you and I see that the kindness of God towards you and to me and to my sins and to your sins and to the way we maneuver and do our human things, God's kindness is what leads you and me to repentance. What a beautiful thought, isn't it? To know that God doesn't send people to hell That God loves and wants to see every man, woman, and child on planet Earth get to heaven. But let me tell you this about love, is that we have to choose this love in the Savior. And the crazy thing about our own sense of freedom and our own sense of balance, you can pick and choose and cherry pick the things about God you want and don't want, but the Savior of the world says, you come take all of me or don't take anything at all. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Why don't we close our eyes for a moment? And as we close our eyes, may we understand that God has never once turned His love off towards us or stopped pursuing connection with us. Today, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may have had a religious version of God a cold one, a churchy one, but you've never had an encounter with the Savior. And God is coming to you and saying, I want to be your Savior. And you want to give your life to Christ. If that's you, why don't you raise your hand? I want to pray with you today. Anyone? Thank you. And the second part of this as those with an identity crisis, and I know I've talked about this before, but it's so important and so valuable for our understanding of who God is and His love for mankind and His love for every believer in this place. If you've struggled coming to the table and receiving the gifts God has for you, God wants to show you His plan for your life and understand that He had a beautiful purpose for you even before you were born. You were not an accident. And where you are at is not a symptom of fate, but that God is right there just as Joseph might have been in the pit, so you are. And God is there with you. And He will lead you through it and take you through it and you will come out stronger because you are a son or daughter of the Most High. Today you say, I'm like Mephibosheth, I'm scared, walking in fear as opposed to understanding what love is. And that God loves me and has forgiven me and given me a new purpose and a new value and a new strength. Today, if that's you, I want to pray that blessing where you can encounter and always sit at God's table and never be ashamed of it. If that's you, I want to raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Back to the King's table. I want us all to pray this together. Dear Jesus, I thank you for inviting me to your table. I thank you today that You accept me, that You love me, and that You strengthen me. I trust You with all of my problems, with all of my sins. I bring all my burdens to this table. I choose today to dine with You and not be scared, but to be filled with love and to be filled with the confidence That God, You love me unconditionally. And that You have a beautiful plan for my life. Help me today, God, to stay at this table and to eat regularly there. To stay put. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, I love you so much. I think it's a beautiful understanding that we understand God's love. This is a big, deep one, and I barely touched it, and I don't know if I did a great job. But I want you to know that God loves you. And that's how He showed His love to us in Isaiah 53 on that cross. When He was in the manger, He had a plan, and it was the cross to die for you and me. Love you guys so much. If there's anything you want prayer for or anything you want to talk about, we'd love to talk with you. And pray with you. And for those of you who are helping with practice and doing all the stuff right afterwards, we're going to meet right after church. So love you guys so much. Make sure you sign up for one of the kids or adopt one or give us lots of money or a little bit of money. No. <laughs> love you so much.